It's often joked that the, the Bible is actually an acronym standing for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And uh, it's kind of a funny little joke. Um, and interestingly, it can produce in you a sort of a, a rather fatalistic uh, view of life. You know, this idea that we're not really supposed to live for this life or, or you know, try to work too much in this life because really we're, we're focused on eternity. You know, so basically, we just got to hold on until we make it to heaven. <clears throat> but on the other hand, the, the Bible does have some basic instructions before leaving earth, doesn't it? In fact, it's full of godly wisdom about how to live a meaningful and purposeful life. I mean, there's a reason why the Bible is still the best-selling book in the world. Um, there, there's so much truth in there um, and so much to show us how to live and how to worship God. And so, in this passage we just read from Ephesians, that's exactly what we get a, a little taste of. This is a very practical passage. This is giving us the practicals about how to live out the Christian life, or at least part of it, and how to do that in community, within the church, within life. Paul begins in verse 25 that we just uh, read from with the word, therefore. And seminary professors like to joke that when you see a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. And in a sense, therefore, is, it's a hinge word. Whenever you see therefore in scripture, you immediately want to look at, well, what came before this word therefore? Because usually what Paul does when he uses this term therefore is he'll, the, before the therefore will usually be some kind of theology. And he'll be laying down the theology of why we should do something or why we should live a certain way. And then after the therefore, it's like, okay, so this is how you do it. I've just laid out this really dense theology. Now, this is what it looks like in real life. And so that's what we get here in this passage. Um, so to understand it a little bit more fully, because it is a very rich passage. There's a lot there, isn't there? I could probably do a whole sermon series on this passage. But to understand it more fully, we need to take a, a few verses back and see where Paul's coming from. So listen to what he says in verses 17 and 18. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that it is, is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. When I read that, I thought, wow, that could have, that could have been written yesterday. Couldn't it? Instead of in the first century AD, it could have, that could have been written yesterday because it, it, it sums up perfectly the secular and godless lifestyle. Paul is saying that when we live life deliberately detached and devoid of God, our thinking becomes futile and our understanding is darkened because of the willful ignorance that hardens our heart. So in one sense, one thing begets the other. We reject God and our hearts become hardened, which leads to ignorance of the truth. And this in turn breeds a kind of a twisted thinking and a warped understanding of everything. And of course, we're seeing more and more of that in society today, aren't we? If, I think if, if we actually, the human race makes it much longer, the history books will look back on this period we're living in right now. And I wouldn't be surprised if they call it something like the, the age of confusion. Because I think we're living in a very confused time, aren't we? 
We're not sure what, what is right and wrong anymore. We're not sure what's real, what's true, what's fake. And, and I think a lot of it ties into the fact that, that society is getting, more, is getting more secular and is abandoning God. And as a result, our understanding becomes darkened. Paul goes on to say before he gets to this passage that, that what we need to do is we need to, to uh, cast off the old way or put off the old self as he calls it. And he's talking about the old self is, is the person we were before Jesus came into our lives. And what he's saying is put on the new self, which is when we're clothed in Christ. We become a new person, a new creation. So, the first part of chapter 4 has been kind of like this theological treatise, if you like, of what the church should look like. And the passage we're now looking at is the practicals. And so, in this passage, Paul addresses uh, four main topics or issues, I would say. So, number one, the first thing he talks about is, is falsehood and lying. Number two, he addresses anger. Thirdly, he addresses working for the benefit of the community. And fourthly, he addresses our words, our speech, the way we talk. So listen to those again. Falsehood and lying, anger, working to benefit the community, and our words and our speech. So he begins at verse 25 and he says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For all are members of one body. Falsehood is the word in the Greek, pseudos. And it's where we get the word, um, you know, uh, when we use the word uh, pseudo something or pseudo this, that's where our word is coming from. All right, when we hear the, the term pseudonym or pseudo, it's basically a word that means fake. And ironically, we see a lot of fakeness in the world today, don't we? A lot of false portrayals of things. You know, this, this is the age of the word fake news, right? We could call it pseudo news. Okay? And ironically, the church is one of the worst places for fakeness. Have you noticed that? That at a lot of churches, people are trying to be somebody they're not. They're trying to live up to this impossible ideal and show the rest of the world, hey, what a great holy person I am. I've got it all together. One of the things I loved about this church the first time Sarah and I uh, uh, set foot in here, which was uh, last October, was we got this immediate sense of just real genuineness and authenticity from, from the congregation. That people weren't trying to be something they're not. But a church can be a breeding ground for this because there's this pressure to be something you're not. Um, I was one of those people who for years was being fake, was trying to be somebody I'm not, was trying to put on a good face and show people I had it all together. And one day it all came tumbling down. And once I became real and showed people who I really was, who I, and I was afraid I would be judged for that, it was nothing of the kind. Instead, there was freedom and there was growth. If you won't open up and be real, you're not going to grow. But Paul says, why are we supposed to speak truthfully to one another? He says, that's the, that's the other side. Don't lie. Speak truthfully to one another. He says, because we're all part of the same body, the same family. 
A family that functions well is honest with each other. And often the church is likened to the body of Christ. And if you just apply this in practical terms, think of your own physical body. Imagine if your body, different organs, they, everything's interconnected, right? It all relies on each other. Everything has to work in tandem for our bodies to function well. And when something goes wrong, if, they, if there's a problem with the heart, for example, well, that affects all kinds of other parts of our body. If there's a problem with the nervous system, that affects different parts of the body. So, in a sense, if you imagine, if the body, one part of the body starts lying to another part of the body. So imagine, imagine your eyesight deceives yourself and tells you that what you're looking at is not really what you're seeing. There would be a problem, wouldn't there? Imagine if you're walking down the street and your eyes trick you and say, there aren't any steps here. You would step off here and probably hurt yourself. There's been a disconnect with your body. And so it is when we lie to one and each other in the church, there's a disconnect. There is a break in community. So number one, stop lying. Stop being fake. Get real. Paul goes on in verse 26 and he says, In your anger, do not sin. And actually, a more literal translation, which uh, the New American Standard Bible gives us, is um, be angry and yet do not sin. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Be angry and yet do not sin. So is it possible to be angry and not sin? Well, the simple answer is yes. Look at Jesus. Jesus was angry when he went into the temple with the money, with the, the money collectors, and he, he threw all the tables around. Jesus was angry. When Jesus went to Lazarus and saw the people weeping over his death, he was angry. The Lord's anger burned when Isaiah touched the Ark of the Covenant. So there is a place for righteous anger. Not all anger is sin. There is a place for it. But Paul makes a more interesting point here as he continues. He says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So what Paul's saying here is, he's actually, what he's doing is, he's, he's giving you a time limit on how long you can be angry for. You've got until the sun sets to deal with your anger. That's not very long, is it? I mean, if you look at the, the longest summer day, that basically would give you about maybe 12 hours of sunlight before you've got to deal with your anger. Do not let the sun go down. Some say, do not go to bed angry. I'm sure that's never happened to any of you. None of us ever gone to bed angry, right? Well, let me tell you. I have. And often it's something to do with an argument with your spouse, isn't it? You've said something. It can be, it can be something that's brewing all day, or it can have been something that you say right before you go to bed. And what happens? We get the whole... Backs facing each other, right? Shoulders facing each other. And we lie there. No. I shall not face you. You can have my back. And that's the end of it. And we'll sort of lie there angry, right? And then you wake up in the morning. And here's the worst part. You wake up in the morning. And for a second, you've forgotten you've had the argument, right? So you wake up. And then you remember. Oh. 
and the sinking cloud comes back on. And then what do you do? You lie in bed wondering, am I going to keep holding on to this? Am, am, am I going to stretch this out? Am I going to let them suffer? Am I going to let them sweat? Shall I continue with the silent treatment? And you see what's happened when you do that? Now you've taken this anger and you've brought it into tomorrow. And now it's going to affect that day and it's going to affect the day after and the day after and so on it goes. So deal with that anger. Paul gives us a very limited time frame until the sun sets. That is pretty tight time frame. At most you've got maybe half a day. Unless you live in Svalbard, Norway is the northernmost inhabited region of Europe, and there is no sunset from approximately the 19th of April to the 23rd of August. So if you live there, you probably have about five months where you could hold on to your anger. But once that sun sets, now you know what I'm saying, right? We cannot hold on to anger. Why shouldn't we hold on to anger? So Paul goes on. He says, don't give the devil a foothold. So here's what ha- happens when, when you hold on to anger. I was, I was thinking of that word foothold. And I was wondering, what, does, what is a foothold? You know, we, we mostly, we think of it as in a, like a climbing term. You know, if you're climbing up some rocks or you're climbing up a tree, as you're climbing, what are you trying to do? You're trying to find safe footing for your foot so you can be stable, so that you can then kind of launch your next climbing move. Um, so I went to the dictionary to look up the word foothold. And... Uh, I have to begrudgingly admit here that I think the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition is better than the Oxford dictionary. Don't tell anybody, though. But here's what it says. It says, foothold is a position usable as a base for further advance. Listen to that again. It's a position usable as a base for further advance. So here's what you do. When you give the devil a foothold, you're giving him a base of operations to launch further attacks at you. That's what it means to give him a foothold. You're giving him, hey, here's a nice little site for you where you can feel safe, and from there you can launch further attacks at me that are rooted out of my anger. And of course, we hear what these other roots are in verse 31, which we'll get back to, but they're listed as bitterness, rage, brawling, and malice. We'll return to those. So, so far, Paul has addressed lying or fakeness, and now he's addressing anger. He goes on in verse 28 to to talk about community, and he says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands. Why? That he may have something to share with those in need. So, Paul's telling us work is productive, and it's not just productive to serve our own needs, and to provide for ourselves, but it's actually to help those who are in need. Each and every one of you in this room has skills and talents, and God didn't give them to you just to help yourself. He gave them to you to help the body of Christ. That means we're all called to serve and help each other in the church. We are a family, and families help each other. Verse 29 goes on and Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So there's another communal aspect here. Paul's saying, hey, be careful what you say. That word unwholesome, its root meaning is rotten. 
It means rotten. So essentially what he's saying is don't let anything rotten, anything decaying come out of your mouths. Anything that would, would cause somebody else to fall. Words have power, don't they? You know, we talk about physical abuse and there's mental abuse, which often comes in the form of words. The first act of God recorded in the Bible was speech. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 says, God said, let there be light. God spoke creation into being by the power of his word. It's why freedom of speech is, is so precious to us, isn't it? It's why it's in the First Amendment. That freedom of speech is essential to the freedom of who we are and any prosperous or democratic nation. We see the power of speech at work today, don't we? Today we have terms such as, you know, speech can be labeled hate speech, right? People talk about, you have done violence to me by the words they've used. Many censor themselves today and are afraid to talk openly about how they really feel. I'm sure we've all been there where perhaps you don't want to share your political views with somebody. You don't want to share your views on marriage. You don't want to share your views on, on whatever that hot topic is. Because there's a fear that words will be used as a weapon against you to incriminate you. There's a fear that free speech is slowly being eroded. Why, why are we afraid? Because words have power. They have the power to destroy and they have the power to give life. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. James chapter 3 verses 9 to 11 says the following. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Words have power. And what Paul's saying is, don't talk one way in church and then Monday morning talk another way. Like we're a, we're a person split in two. He says our words should be for lifting others up, for building them up according to to their needs. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody has said just the right word to you at just the right moment and it has changed and completely flipped your view of something? My mind goes through, I, was, I recently saw a picture on, um, on social media and it was of a man who was stood on a bridge contemplating suicide. And there was somebody stood on the other side talking to him. And I knew right there and then that this person's words had the power to save that man. There have been numerous people talked off ledges because of saying the right words. In fact, I read about a man, I think in Australia, who lives right by a cliff. And he spends a lot of his time talking people out of jumping off the cliff and inviting them home for a cup of tea. 
Think of all those lives he saved because of the words he used. In verse 30, Paul goes on and he tells us that these various things, so lying, anger, words, rotten words, these, these grieve the Holy Spirit. They grieve the Holy Spirit. When we have lying or fakeness, anger and unwholesome talk in the church, it destroys the unity of the church and creates division. And guess what? This is his church. It grieves the Holy Spirit when he sees these kind of divisions. One commentator said this. They said, the Spirit is the divine agent of reconciliation and unity in the body and is especially grieved when unwholesome speech is offered by members against one another. You know, the church is all too human, and everybody in it is all too human. And often we hurt each other. We say things that are offensive. We get offended. We get hurt. But we're not called to dwell on it. We're not called to let that offense take root and turn into anger. That is not what the church is about. So verse 31, Paul returns to the byproduct or the ugly siblings of anger. Paul tells us to get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. So malice kind of brackets all those things together. And these vices that he just listed, they're the outworkings of anger. Freud said that depression is anger turned inwards. And I think there's something to that. It's anger turned inwards that has been left to brew. Anger is is like a rotting, dying tree with deep roots. Long-term anger not only turns into depression, but it turns into bitterness. Have you ever met somebody who's just a bitter person? They're full of anger. They're full of rage. And it's because they've allowed anger to take root. And bitterness is the enemy of reconciliation and forgiveness. That's the real danger of bitterness. Aristotle, he described bitterness as the resentful spirit which refuses reconciliation. That's what bitterness does. Bitterness, when it takes root, what it does is it looks at somebody else who has hurt them or offended them and it says, I am never going to forgive you. I don't want to forgive you. And I'll never forgive you because then I will have to give something up. I will have to let go of my anger and bitterness. And I don't want to. But all these things, they're deadly venoms that will poison your soul. And ultimately, they will kill you. But fortunately, Paul offers us the antidote. In verses 32 through Chapter 5, verses 2, he says the following, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So listen, listen to the antidotes there, right? We've heard all this about anger and rage and bitterness, The antidotes are kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Do you think the world could use a little bit more kindness? Do you think it could use a little bit more compassion 
I think those virtues are desperately needed. But you know what? Especially forgiveness. Especially forgiveness. We live in an age and a time of gotcha. Ha! Caught you. And if I can't find something, I'm going to go back five, ten years and try and dig something up from social media or an email you sent, but I'm going to get you. And it's all about punitive, punish, punish. Where's the forgiveness? Where is the, the spirit of, you know, I messed up and I'm sorry. We need forgiveness. And you know, we have to learn to forgive each other, especially in the church. Isn't that the ironic thing? That I find that Christians can be some of the most unforgiving people out there. Why are we so unforgiving? It can be towards a family member, or it can be towards a church member, somebody who's offended them. But listen, after how much we have been forgiven by Christ, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from anyone. Can we understand that one simple truth? We have been forgiven so much through what Jesus did on the cross for us that we forfeit our right to withhold forgiveness when we declare that Jesus is Lord. You know, Jesus makes it plain in Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. He says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father, as in God, will not forgive your sins. So listen to that. He's saying, if you hold on to sin, uh, onto unforgiveness, neither shall you be forgiven. One thing we cannot do is control other people's actions and responses. But you can control your own. Forgiving others is a choice. And by doing so, you guard your heart against bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. Ironically, when you forgive somebody, you empower yourself. We often think that forgiveness is, a, is an act of weakness, that you're letting somebody off the hook. You want justice, and by forgiving them, you're taking that away. No, no. Forgiveness takes courage. It takes humility. But you empower yourself, because when you forgive somebody, you remove the power that this person had over you. And that's what Paul tells us when he says, be imitators of God. We are made in his image. And we are called to imitate God. You know, something I'm, I'm learning right now is um, our little girl, Dove, she's in this really fun age. She's about 19 months. And she's like a little sponge. She's picking up all kinds of things and she's trying to say little words. And she's testing us a little bit with authority. All these kind of things. But one of the things I've noticed, and I'm sure um, you will notice this yourself, we are all the children of somebody, and many of us have children, is that what often makes a child look like their parents, is sometimes it's a physical feature, but often, you know what it is? It's the mannerisms. It's the way they smile, or the way they just present themselves. My brother and my sister and myself, we don't really look that alike. But most people say they can tell we're siblings because of our mannerisms. And so it is with little Dove. She's picking up little things from Sarah and I that make people say, oh, we can tell that she's your kid. Well, that's how we should be with God when we are being imitators of God. 
We should have God's mannerisms. People should be able to see the Jesus in us. They should be able to tell that we are a follower of Christ by the way we act, by the way we speak, and by the way we forgive others. Finally, Paul says, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And that's what it ultimately comes down to, folks. It comes down to the cross. It always comes down to the cross and what Jesus did for us on that cross. That was the ultimate act of love and forgiveness. And we are called to walk in his footsteps. Can we love like Jesus did? Can we forgive like Jesus did? We are called to that purpose. So I want us to, um, as we wrap up here with the sermon, I want us to spend a few moments in prayer. And what I want to do is I want to ask the Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts about a place or a person in your life that you are withholding forgiveness from. I think we all have somebody somewhere that there are still some roots of unforgiveness that we need to uproot. It's a hard work, but it's a freeing work. And so let's just spend a few moments. Lord, I just pray that would you bring to our minds somebody in our lives that we have not fully forgiven somebody that we are still harboring bitterness and resentment towards. Would you show us, Lord, how you love them? How they are precious in your eyes despite all their faults. How they were made in your image, that they are your child. Would you give us those eyes, Lord? And Lord, I just pray for each and every one of us now that you would soften our hearts, remove that hardness in our own hearts that is a barrier to forgiving that person. Perhaps it's a group of people. Lord, we confess with our hearts. And we proclaim, Lord, that we forgive this person. If you feel the Lord working on your heart right now, just pray that. Pray that, Lord, help me to forgive this person. I place that anger, that bitterness, that resentment, I place it at the foot of your cross. I give it to you, Lord. And I declare that I have forgiven them just as you forgave me. Now, Lord Jesus, help me to walk in that newfound freedom as that cloud has been lifted, as I've laid my burdens on you. We thank you and we give you praise through Jesus Christ. Amen.